We're going to start today's session with Pexum Soriapa. Pexum is a partner now, very, very newly a partner at Upfront Ventures. Um, I've known Pexum for a very, very long time and invited him to talk today primarily, however, not as a venture capitalist, but as a veteran of the corp dev world. We've been having a lot of conversations here about exit strategy. And uh, in prior sessions, you have listened to speakers discuss, you know, bootstrapping to exit and, and various nuances of how um, acquirers, the buy-side acquirers, do uh, acquisitions, how do they think of acquisitions, and so forth. So we will continue that conversation today with Exxon. Exxon, welcome to the show. It's great to see you. Thanks, Ramana. Just so grateful to be here and just admire your work and what you do for entrepreneurs. So excited to share. So Exxon, let's start with, I know you are very time compressed today, so I will be very mindful of that. But uh, let's start by uh, having you talk a little bit about your background in corp development, doing acquisitions from the buy side from various very significant companies before you switch to the venture side. Yes, no, um, yes I've had now four stints. Um, it's hard for me to believe um, as a corp dev leader during my career. Um, I've been at Twitter, SuccessFactors, Akamai, and McAfee. Um, just hearing that list, you could probably appreciate that it's an unusual list to string together because it really reflects kind of everything from the very bottom of the stack to the top of the stack. So I think I'm, I'm fairly unique in that way. Uh, the, I think what's most, most notable about the times I spent is I've been lucky to be with companies at an important strategic inflection point. So. Um, you may remember at Success Factors, where I was for six years, I joined, you know, basically when it was pretty much like a, a, a one product company, performance and goals. And I had the opportunity to really build out the product suite with the product leadership team, which then ultimately consummated, which then ultimately led to the sale of the business to SAP for what was then the highest software multiple of all time. And then more recently at mm -hmm. Twitter, um, I've been part of the, I had been part of the team that really was in place to accelerate the pace of innovation to really meet market needs. So these are different motivations. Let me uh, see if I can, you know, synthesis, uh, facilitate a synthesis of uh, how you think about acquisitions, what to acquire and why. And these are, yeah. you just cited two very different motivations. So. So explain how you um, how you acquire and why, and and I'm going to focus on the buy side in the interest of time. It would be very yeah. interesting to learn the success factor to SAP deal, but for the moment, let's put that a bit on the um, on the back burner and, and talk about what you acquire. Um, our yeah. audience, as you know, we, are, we work primarily with early stage companies. We love capital efficient companies. So yeah. um, so in that spectrum. How do you think of acquisitions, both on the B2B side and on the B2C side? Yeah, so look, I think uh, really the first thing is, as a, as a corporate acquirer, what's really key is knowing where your company is headed, which, which really sounds trite, but sometimes you know, not always the case. So 
for me, like strategy comes first, which is defining strategically where the company's headed. So as I said, in the example of success factors, it was very clearly, it's going to build out a product suite. What is a product suite? In what, in what order do you stack rank a product suite? Um, the second piece around thinking about acquisitions is like, once you know where you're headed, you have to really bear in mind, even as a core dev leader, that it's really one of three ways to get to the goal of executing the strategy. Um, there's obviously internal organic build. There's often an, an opportunity to OEM. And then finally, there's acquisition. And so I feel that part of my job as a core dev leader was always not to try to shill a deal and get a company to do an acquisition, it was really to force the company to think through the three alternatives and then determine that acquisition is the best way to accomplish that. Do you, this is, what you're saying is very interesting. Do you view OEM as a stepping stone to an acquisition happening? Uh, yes, it can often be. Uh, the... There are at least a couple of examples I can think of at Twitter, and and because Twitter has been relatively private about how it talks about itself, I won't probably name company names as I'm talking about it. But you know, as an example, at Twitter, um, we were looking at spam filtering as an area, and we ultimately mm -hmm. bought a company in that space. Um, in fact, it was an Apple hire. Um, and um, minimally capitalized, so very much down kind of your fairway. But uh, there, uh, before the acquisition, we end up we ended up kind of OEMing the product, and through the work of OEMing and discovering kind of both the talent of the team as well as the capability of the product, it very quickly moved to acquisition. So I, it's definitely a path. Uh, but it's, I, again, I think that companies often tend to kind of go between buy or build and sometimes don't really examine that middle zone, which can often be the right answer. Very good. Now, um, who, it, let's actually take this example that you started. It's always easier to explain things with case studies. Yeah. Um, who drives acquisitions? Is it the product leaders or corp dev? How, how do you find out about this company that you ended up considering an OEM deal with and that finally led to an acquisition? Yeah, so no, great, great question. Uh, so let me start with, in a very perfect world, you know, I personally am biased towards believing that the product leader is the one who drives an acquisition. I wanna be clear yeah. that the world is never perfect and one of the challenges I think on the sell side is to understand like who really is driving the acquisition because a lot of companies, it's, it's a moving target and you get passed around a lot. But in the case of Twitter specifically, it's always the product leader who is ultimately the decider, so to speak. And Corb uh, is really there as a collaborator and kind of driver of the deal, but not a decider. And so in this case, you know, product had an agenda to, um, in this case study, to have to figure out, you know, how to content, how to filter spam better on the platform. And so the way it would work is, you know, you want to keep product focused on product releases. And therefore, when the two teams are tightly aligned, it's kind of like 
bringing core dev into the strategy kind of explaining what the qualification criteria are for the types of companies they would be interested in and then you know giving core dev a leash to go out and basically scout broadly um, and find as many of these types of companies as possible and then start to vet you know both which would work from the technical perspective but then also like which teams feel like they would work well from kind of a twitter culture point of view and then once that process has whittled down the list to you know a few of the top candidates that would be typically where product then will become much more part of the process Jackson, how do you orchestrate the scouting process you know one of the things that we always uh, consider is kind of staying on the radar of a potential acquirer from the sell side so yes. um, how do we do that and how do you on the buy side you know cast your net or you know keep yourself abreast of what's happening in the industry in various aspects yeah. of the industry yeah well so i think so i'll start from the buy side but then i'll i'll go to the sell side on the buy side um look i think in my case particularly i've i've been blessed with like being a kind of i'll call it quotes like the branded company in the space so to speak and so we've always had I, we always had great success in finding companies that were relevant either because you know their investors made sure they were on our radar or you know our uh, often uh, in twitter in particular there's a really strong network of entrepreneurs who maintain contact with one another and you know usually an entrepreneur would find a way to get to twitter through another entrepreneurial contact yeah and so i i think that you know ultimately like turning to the sell side of it um i think there are a couple of ways i've obviously already mentioned a few which is use your network and get get to the company um the two doors that are usually open are corp dev who's always interested in talking to as many companies as possible and get to know them early and then the other door is really the product side and then there you know most I, i think most savvy entrepreneurs will find a way to network their way to the business i think the third way that it's seldom as appreciated but very important is um i think particularly if you're on the enterprise side is a either if you have common customers which is an excuse yeah. to talk to each other to kind of meet in the field and you know come up with an idea where there's like an interesting joint value proposition that you can bring to the other side um i think the other thing which which really gets you on the radar of an enterprise company is when you win customers in sales cycles against them and so like if you know you're regularly meeting somebody this is actually a great way to get you on the radar of that somebody because they don't like to lose if they're playing against you yeah great and um you know i want to underscore one thing to our um listeners here you know you always feel like oh are they going to talk to us you know on the corporate side or on the product side of the acquiring company oh are we too early are they going to talk to us etc actually they want to know about you as much yeah. as you want them to know about you so it's it's a motivation on both sides of the equation to get acquainted so yes. please do not underestimate the importance of to tough 
making that introduction through your network, through you know other uh, fellow entrepreneurs, through us, through anybody you know who can intro you into that company, maybe potential customers or joint customers, um, competitors, etc. But you, you want to be on people's radars. People yes. cannot acquire you if they don't don't know about you, and you could be too small, and they don't, they haven't found out about you yet. You want to make sure that you are on the radar of potential acquirers. Yeah, and I'd, some, I'd love to yeah, uh, I'd love to build on that point, Ramana. Um, I think the other yes. thing I'd note as a buyer is that um, the things, the places where I've seen it most successful is where you've been able to build a relationship. And you actually know each yeah. other long before the sale is is something that's going to be imminent, and that's just because all these things are very relational. And you know, when a company yeah. buys you, they're buying you because not just because they like your technology and your product, but they believe you're going to fit, and they believe that you're motivated and aligned with the mission, and that you have people that will be aligned with that mission. And so, if you only approach companies when you're ready to sell there really usually isn't quite enough time to have that form of discovery. And so like, it's harder for a buyer to have conviction. Yeah, very, very true. Um, what role does valuation play in whether an acquisition happens or not spectrum? Yeah, I, I, this is kind of a tough one because I think the reality is that it tends to be the issue on whether a deal happens or not. And, you know, that's because, you know, very professional corp dev teams, you know, are usually highly disciplined around how they value deals, you know, and what are the norms that they use around them. And then similarly, in the case of, in the case of venture-backed uh, on uh, companies in particular, they have investors that kind of similarly are, you know, looking at the end of the day to maximize investor returns. And then, you know, that, Kind of constant tension between the two causes these deals to be very valuation driven when you know in fact there are a lot of other factors beyond valuation that are important now if i if i turn to the seller side of this equation um i'd say i would say one thing which is i think for sellers it's often very difficult particularly bootstrapped and minimally capitalized ones in the process because there is often an asymmetric advantage that buyers have because like sellers often are selling their first ever business and they don't have as many reps at doing that. Whereas buyers are doing this all the time. They have better, typically will have better information. And so the thing that I would advise sellers around is that in order to have a successful sale process, if you've determined you're gonna sell, you have to have op like credible options that give you an opportunity to create what I call pricing tension in the process. Like you never want to have one potential buyer. You want to have several that, you know, are viable, that you're moving along at a pace that's more or less parallel to one another. Because when you get to the end, if you only have one potential buyer, you don't, you don't have a lot of flexibility in terms of pushing value. Whereas if there is tension in the process, this is what allows you to achieve kind of, you know, better prices. And then the last point I'd make is that it was similar to my point around using your network. 
um, you really want to, if you, if you don't have sophisticated investors who put money into you, you want to make sure you're leveraging people who are savvy in, in, in the tech world who kind of understand or have sold businesses, whether that's other entrepreneurs, a mentor advisor, it could be even like a great deal lawyer that works with you, but you do want somebody in your corner. Yeah. And what are the drivers? Um, you know, how do you, from the buy side, value deals that would be helpful for the entrepreneur on the sell side to be aware of? Yeah. Um, so I think a couple of things. Um, you know, one is if it's an aqua hire, what is most typical is that, you know, companies will value those businesses purely on a what I call like a dollar per product, product headcount um, multiple. And so the reason that may be relevant to an entrepreneur is that to the extent that you have kind of a lot of commercial people around, you need to understand that an acquirer really doesn't value the commercial people when it's looking at an aqua hire. It's purely how many product and product and engineering people are, are on board. And so this is like an equation you kind of have to understand when you're doing that. Um, the other thing that's important, whether it's aqua hire or really any type of deal with, you know, small private company is buyers want to optimize for more money going to team and employees than investors. And so like, yeah. you know, I know we'll get to this a little bit later, but in a way like, and now I'm speaking against myself as a venture capitalist, but in a way like buyers love the world where almost all the money if not all of it goes to the entrepreneurs and the and the people who built the product and so on than having to give any of the money to the outside i mean it's a necessity in many cases but it's clearly a preference if it's possible so which is a good segue into um, the discussion on bootstrapping to exit, which comes up a lot in our quarters. Uh, we have had several bootstrap to exit deals, very thinly capitalized companies or completely bootstrap companies that we have had exits with. Um, now, what is that equation if it's a tech talent based multiple, um, you know, acquisition price in an acqui-hire situation. What, what is the current thinking on that? Yeah, so the, I would say this. I, so it, the, the biggest, probably the biggest leap in terms of valuation at the end of the day is literally whether it ends up being a, a so-called tech and talent deal versus an aqua hire deal. I mean, an aqua hire deal, realistically, there isn't, those are not going to be like a rich value. What you're really looking for um, as an entrepreneur clearly is um, having not just, you know, a product, but that you can show a product market fit. So I, I would yes, say that like absolutely. where I divide it is like aqua hires tend to be like finish the product, didn't prove product market fit, unlikely to have any commercial success. Um, tech and talent deals that have the potential to have higher multiples are product complete, very early signs of product market fit. If the company chose to raise another round, 
um, the buyer will have the feeling that this company could continue to scale. And so in some way, yes. that's where they start to pay what I would call closer to a company market multiple, you know, that is extrapolated from both company comparables in the public space, as well as private comparables in, you know, in kind of venture landscape. And then the third, you know, variety, which is a, a more mature variety of it is where like, you're actually having commercial success and your metrics are scaling and the art is you want to be selling at the moment where things don't appear to be slowing down, but are accelerating because anytime there's acceleration, that's where a company feels pressure to pay up, so to speak, if that makes sense. Yes. So um, I'm going to double click down on your second category, which is you have product market fit. The options are, do we sell the company now or do we go for another round of funding? If we choose to go for another round of funding, we will get funded because we have product market fit and we have customers and so forth. So in that scenario, how does valuation compare in an exit versus a funding valuation? Yeah, so I believe that this is where things get really tricky because I believe that because of where the venture capital market is today, which, you know, I would argue in some ways is a bit probably frothier than like where an acquirer is willing to pay. Um, I think often the, the sticker price on getting venture money will look very attractive from a valuation point. Like if you just, comparing dollars from a valuation point of view. But I think mm -hmm. where the tension is for the entrepreneur is, is twofold. So once is when you raise money at a relatively high valuation, because that's where the venture market is pricing you, you're also now building in an execution ramp that you need to execute to in milestones that could potentially be heroic because you do actually have to grow into these valuations through execution. Whereas okay. on the, on the sell side, if you decide to sell, even though those dollars on a, on a nominal, you know, I'll make it up. Like the venture market may say you're a hundred, but the, but the buyer market might say, I'll pay you 50 in cash today. The difference between the two, honestly, is if you get the 50 in cash today, you have the whatever return you have, and now the execution risk has really, in a way, passed to the company. Not like you don't personally now have the execution risk of, hey, can I ramp either revenues or users to the point where I could justify the fact that I just got valued at 100 million, even though like, I I'll call it like rational multiples say I'm worth more like 50. Yeah, very good. Now, um, what, what tension do you experience in negotiating with companies that have a lot of venture capital versus the ones that have smaller amounts of capital? And, yeah. um, and this is particularly relevant right now, given the, that the valuations are ballooning, absolutely. Yes. How do, I mean, given, given what's happening in the venture market today, 
how would these companies ever find strategic exits? They're all thinking that they're all going to be unicorns, they're all going to go public, and the public market is going to support this kind of valuation. How are these companies ever going to find strategic exits? Yeah. So I guess I'd say it this way, which is the reason you do see valuations like this is that in some ways, like the market has proven out that it is actually possible to have like multi, you know, like multi tens, if not low hundreds of millions of dollars exits, which, you know, you know, because you've been around for a while too. It, it wasn't something that really happened um, 10 years ago, right? Like I talked about no. success factors being the highest software multiple of all time when it sold in, I think it was 2011, I've forgotten now, but that was only like a $3.4 million deal, a billion dollar deal, which is a pittance, right, in today's world. And and so I think what 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 you would, what I'd say is that entrepreneurs do have a belief that, that right now, and maybe investors too, that the trees will just continue to grow to the skies because they have seen, you know, basically strike as, you know, showing that there's a potential to get there. You see valuations like Coinbase and so on. And so I think there is this natural tendency to think that you can be the one to get there. I mean, you know, entrepreneurs are inherently optimistic. Um, but I, I would probably flip it around. I'm a bit old fashioned and still believe that, you know, at the end of the day, what what you want to do as a as a business owner is to control your own destiny and that you should capitalize yourself as much as you need to get to your next milestones. And you should be very rational about like what level like a kind of what level of scale you believe the business will achieve kind of what it achieves its its journey you know different companies will get to different scale and 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 think a lot about um like what is a what is a great return on the investment you've put into it both in terms of sweat and possibly in terms of money and realize that you know when 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 the when the tide finally turns, the companies that will do okay are the ones that actually build real businesses and have been able to execute and, and grow and not, and not because they were fueled by lots of excess capital, but they had inherently strong business models, you know, with again, old fashioned, but you know, real unit economics and so on. So yeah, I, I think yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm probably not as in favor of the tendency to overcapitalize companies that don't need them and would prefer to see them kind of run leaner and in some ways have to have the struggle of being resource constrained, which I think is what drives like great companies, to be honest. Yeah, we are on the same page on that. Sexton, I'm going to have to let you go. Uh, we will have you back to discuss your new role at Upfront Ventures and, and what uh, your firm is focusing on. So have a good flight and thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, Sramana. I really enjoyed it. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you.